I think in the, at the level of the market, there have been really big changes. I mean, we're seeing this crisis in the fast food industry. You know, McDonald's just you know, said they're phasing out antibiotics in chicken, and they're going to move on to some other meats. Um, they're under enormous pressure. Um, the critique of the food system is being absorbed by the food industry to a, to a remarkable extent, more than I would have guessed then. And I see lots of fear in the conventional food industry, fear of their consumer, and the fact that their consumers, the ground is shifting right under them. They know it. Walmart knows it. McDonald's knows it. Um, and uh, all the retailers know it. Heritage Radio Network proudly presents Evolutionaries Michael Pollan. Michael Pollan has been celebrated, critiqued, and worshipped. He's a spirit guide for many in the world of food. He's won numerous awards and sparked lively debates with his writing. In 2010, he was named one of the world's 100 most influential people by Time Magazine. He's the author of five books, Second Nature, A Place of My Own, The Botany of Desire, which also aired as a two-hour documentary on PBS, The Omnivore's Dilemma, and In Defense of Food. The latter two are national bestsellers that help guide the national discourse on food and agriculture. The Long Island native is a professor of journalism at the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. He was the executive editor of Harper's Magazine and is currently a contributing writer to New York Magazine and the New York Times Magazine. Heritage Radio Network Executive Director Aaron Fairbanks caught up with him briefly at his home in the Bay Area. He talked about his life as a child and the events that would shape his career as a writer. My mom didn't go back to work till I was already in probably high school or, or junior high. So my sister, my youngest sister, experienced a working mom in a way I didn't. My mom was home when I was uh, when I was a young kid, and my sister was a young kid. So she was very present, and my dad was very not present because he worked far away. He commuted to New York City, and he had like a three or four hour commute every day. So he often would miss dinner. He'd be eating, you know, by himself after dinner. We would all eat together at dinner. So I was the older guy at the table, but we all helped my mom in the kitchen, and we were all involved in that. And and. You know, varying degrees in, interested in cooking. I mean, I was kind of, I would, I like watching the process and helping the process. Certain dishes in particular. Michael Pollan, now a major figure in the Berkeley orbit, is an unlikely product of the Long Island suburbs. He's the son of author and financial consultant Stephen Pollan and columnist Corky Pollan. There was a kind of dream of something new and better. Uh, that the suburbs represented. And it did have this imagery that was very important. Um, you know, there, was, there were lots of houses pretending to be more than they were that looked like, you know, southern mansions and, you know, with columns and giant chandeliers on these, you know, crappy two-by-four houses. And so there was this sense of we're now living in a, in a, in a more graceful place. And... Um, and nobody was thinking about tradition, their own family traditions. They were they were moving up to something else, and and that was reflected in the food too. Nobody dared eat the food of their their own childhood. They were eating what Julia Child was talking about, and, and James Beard, and what you know Craig Claiborne, and so there was along with the suburbs came a a whole way of life that was looking forward, not looking back, and uh, or looking to Europe and not looking to you know, Romania and Russia, where my ancestors came from. 
Um, so it was self, you know, it was that whole self-made American idea that you, you can just kind of create a new world from scratch, including a new way of eating and a new, new kind of architecture and whatever it is, a new way of dressing. You weren't, you weren't beholden to the past. And there was something, you know, great about that. I mean, it's not, you know, it's easy to look down on it, but it was full of optimism and, um, and creativity and, and, um, and learning. I mean, people not just accepting what they had, but, but trying to learn how to cook something different or live in a slightly different way. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's a very much the American idea. I, want, I, I knew about Bennington because my mother had been there. And, and, I, and I heard she would tell stories of these amazing classes she took and these really cool professors and famous poets and critics. And uh, I remember being in the, in the attic, going through her papers from college and rereading her papers on Dostoevsky and, and uh, Joyce and all those things. And I thought it was so cool. And I really was, I, you know, I love literature and she did too. We had that in common and she had been an English major. And so it was the college I heard about first, and for me it, it said college, you know. And, uh, and in fact, I applied nowhere else. I just, that's where I was going to go. It was kind of crazy. Um, and in those days, there was no helicopter parenting, so nobody, like, said, you schmuck, you should be applying to five other schools, maybe you could do better. Um, <clears throat> so, but Bennington didn't have very good food, you know, it was very conventional. I mean, they cooked their own food. They weren't, I don't think they were using Aramark or anything. And they had a vegetarian line, which, where you could get nut loaf and, you know, bricks of various kinds like that and casseroles. But it was nothing you really wanted. Um, I did have some interest in food then, though. I was, um, while I was there, I had a couple summers where I worked at the Village Voice in college, beginning as a sophomore and junior. And... I was writing food reviews for the this section they had, a kind of service section in the middle called the Centerfold section. And I convinced um, my editor that they should do a roundup of restaurants in Vermont <laughs> for some reason. And she she was always very agreeable. Alexander Anderson is her name. And, um, and so uh, while I was at school... I, I went out and I had an expense account and I could go to really nice restaurants and I had this one professor, Alan Shoes, who was my English professor, who I invited to come with me. And, and this guy was never had any money, had been divorced, uh, you know, Bennington didn't pay very well and he he was delighted even to go out with some, you know, sophomore student to uh, to go to a steakhouse or a sushi place and, and so we would drive around Vermont looking for good restaurants. And he, I thought he, we would collaborate on the writing, but I was on, I was left on my own with that. <laughs> Columbia was an unusual school in that the best part was right at the beginning. You did these master's projects, and you could choose anyone in the faculty and work with that person, and you did one each semester. And then after that, you had to learn German and read the Fairy Queen and do all the not fun parts of graduate school. Um, so anyway, at the end of that year, I had a job working in a magazine 
uh, for the summer called Channels and Other Human Interests. No, sorry, called Channels Magazine. I also worked at a magazine called Politics and Other Human Interests, both of which are now defunct. And while I was at that job, uh, I was publishing really for the one of the first times uh, in this magazine and editing and really enjoying it. It was a magazine launched by a nonprofit that was that covered the television industry, just as it was being revolutionized by satellites and computers. And it really was about the um, you know this HBO had just started satellites had revolutionizing everything and. And the editor was a man named Les Brown, who was truly a visionary. He he had um, been the TV reporter for the um, uh, the New York Times, and he saw what was happening. He saw that the networks were dinosaurs, and that this technology was going to change everything. And there'd be shows on TV with really bad language coming. You know, he just saw everything. It was kind of remarkable. So I was working for him and writing and um, and writing like critical articles about Hill Street Blues, and you know the the image of the businessman on television, stuff like that, and having a great time. And then it came time to go back to school, and I didn't want to give up this job. And um, and I also could see that uh, I'd have to go live in Omaha, Nebraska, or somewhere if I was going to get a job as a PhD in English. So so I, I reached a fork in the road that fall, and um, initially I tried to do both, and I kept the the job going while I went back to graduate school, but then I just, my head exploded. It was just more than I could do. So I gave up graduate school. Um, and I had a you know, full boat fellowship and teaching and, you know, I had, it was going to be as good as graduate school could be, but still not as fun as having an actual job. And so I quit. So I gave it up and, um, it was a good call. I mean, you know, I found my way back to a university. I mean, I teach now in a university without having the, gone to the trouble of ever getting a, a PhD. Uh, or earning my stripes as an assistant professor. I mean, when I came to journalism, when I came to California, I came in as a full professor. And so, so yeah, it was a good route. I just can't recommend it to anyone else. It doesn't always work out that way. <laughs> so when you have an issue like genetic modification of crops, um, where, as it happened, for, you know, reasons of historical accident, there the Republicans and Democrats both supported it. The Republicans, because it was a new technology and they were laissez-faire. The Democrats, because it came up at a moment of um, uh, economic stagnation and interest in promoting uh, what was called industrial policy. This was a, it was modeled on Japan and Germany where they had kind of picked out certain industries that the government would help get them launched to relaunch the economy, reinvigorate the economy. And biotechnology had been one of those ones that the Democrats uh, got behind and um, supported. So where do you stand to, to, to make a political fight if there's no congressman, if there's no leadership in Congress deigning to debate this? call hearings on it, it just vanishes. And and so I was even, I was unaware that it was a political issue until I watched what was happening in England, where they were, you know, ripping up fields and burning them and having these giant fights. And, and so this is back in 1997, 98, when it had just been introduced. And I'm thinking, you know, either they're crazy and overreacting to this new technology, or we're crazy because we're not reacting at all and we're not having a debate about it. Um, and so I was, you know, if you if you read about genetic engineering, it was in the business press, you know, and it sort of came up 
to public attention as a business story, cool new way of making seeds or tomatoes or whatever, um, and received very little mainstream press. And, uh, and the companies were fine with that. In fact, I think they wanted that because after the, the uh, Flavor Saver tomato failed, that was the first consumer product, it, and it failed for reasons that didn't have anything to do with the technology. No one objected to the technology. They objected to the tomato. It was a shitty tomato. You know, they just put the gene in the wrong tomato. And um, after that failed, the products they had were not things that people ate. You know, they had number two um, commodity corn, and they had um, soybeans, commercial soybeans, not edamame. I mean, the, the kind that have to be processed, and this was not corn on the cob. And cotton, which we didn't eat either. So they didn't have a story to tell the consumer. Um, so they wanted silence also. They just wanted to slip this into the food supply, and, and, and a lot of people did. And let's, why do we have to talk to consumers about this? And Monsanto had never talked to consumers before. They sold, you know, herbicide to the government and to, the, and to farmers. They sold, uh, you know, they were in the chemical business, but they didn't sell. They didn't have consumer brands. So everybody was happy to keep it really quiet um, and not have a debate about it. And, uh, and that's, I wrote my first piece because I was kind of mystified by this. Because as, as a gardener and as someone interested in botany and, and, and plants... I knew this represented a, a, a real new wrinkle in our relationship to plants and a new way of breeding. I knew how traditional breeding worked. And I didn't buy it when Monsanto said, oh, this is just another form of hybridization, you know. And no, it didn't, sure didn't look like that. Um, I wasn't necessarily against it when I started. I, I was curious about it um, and, uh, and imagined plants that would actually represent major improvements, like plants that could synthesize their own nitrogen we were talking about things like that that were pretty cool ideas and could solve real problems, environmental problems that we have. As it turned out, they didn't come up with those kind of, you know, they came up with some kind of um, not that impressive products, um, herbicide tolerance and BT. Um, and I knew all about BT because I was a gardener and, and occasionally I would use it in my garden. Um, so that got me started. That was my first really substantial article on the food system. Um, I approached, I had been writing a series of articles on my garden for the New York Times Magazine uh, that culminated in Second Nature, the, my first book. And I was very interested in using the garden as a place to talk about nature and, and the environment. And normally when we talk about those things, we go to the woods, go to the forest, go to the desert. And that's what Thoreau did, you know. And I was interested in kind of taking a new a new tact on the Thoreau project, which is, you know, what does nature have to t teach us about how to behave in nature and how to get a living and all these kind of things. And, um, but I found that the garden was a really more interesting place to do this at this point, um, because our problems involve not wilderness so much, but the places where we mix up culture with nature. And the garden is a great example of that. So I had been writing these essays, and then I heard about GM crops coming on the market and pitched my editor at the Times. I'd like to do a piece on, you know, this, this change coming that's going to affect gardeners, but it also eaters and everybody else. And so they gave me the assignment. And I was able to approach Monsanto as a garden writer, you know, the most benign creature on earth. Um, 
and they were willing to give me amazing access and give me um, seeds, potato seed that I could plant. And uh, you know, I had a very, I had a wonderful um, opening to their world and their labs and their customers. After I published Botany Desire, I was out here on book tour, and a good friend of mine I'd met at Harper's named Mark Danner, who had then been my editor at the, at the Times Magazine and encouraged me to do this series of pieces on the garden, um, he was teaching here, and I went and visited him, and he introduced me to uh, Orville Schell, who was the dean. And Orville was out raising money for a new chair in science journalism from the Knight Foundation. And he decided I was a science journalist. <laughs> I hadn't really thought of myself that way. So Orville started kind of, you know, encouraging me to come and, and apply for this new chair. And there was a national search. And, um, and I came out and gave a talk about the cattle industry that I think kind of sealed the deal. Because um, here it was Berkeley. And Alice Waters was in the front row. And Orville was into food. And, you know, even the university was into food. Um, so they gave me this you know, very plum job, even though I had never taught before. Our life was not broken. We were living in the country, and I was writing books, and I had various other gigs to, you know, keep myself whole. I couldn't quite make a living as a writer uh, at that point. And, um, but we were in this very small town in the middle of nowhere in Cornwall, Connecticut. My son was going to this tiny little public school. And um, here was this chance to you know, have an adventure for two years and expose my son to a different kind of environment, different culture. Um, my wife is a landscape painter and expose her to a different um, landscape and light and everything. So we thought, let's try it. And we went into it thinking, we'll just try it for two years. We didn't sell our house. We rented it furnished. We didn't move all our furniture. We, we rented furnished houses here. And um, after two years, we decided we didn't want to go back. So we stuck around and we bought a house. Well, part of it is, is finding models that are really inspiring. I mean, for me, it was finding Joel Salatin's farm and that, you know, oh, you don't have to use all that oil to grow food. You can use the sun. You can put the food system back on solar energy. That's incredible. And you can sequester carbon and build fertility and actually create soil at the same time you're feeding people. Those kind of, you know, we live in a world of, of, of where we assume our relationship to nature is tragic and zero-sum, and that for us to get what we want, nature is diminished. And you go to a farm like that and you realize, no, we can feed ourselves and heal the earth at the same time. So those inspiring examples, I think, are really important. So you build on those. 
And the other is you build on victories. Um, you know, we had a soda tax victory here in Berkeley. I mean, you know, hard fought every other place. Big soda defeated it. You know, the soda industry is kind of on the run now. You know, soda soda sales are falling. People are finally getting the message that this is not something to put in your baby bottle and and uh, and drink every day. And um, so we should celebrate our victories and um, and the fact that this little tiny movement has the food industry afraid and on the run. That's <laughs> and you know and why? Well, because we have the ear of the consumer and and the consumer is starting to distrust them. So, um, so finding inspiring examples and building on victories, I think that's how you create a movement. So you're, you're optimistic. I'm definitely optimistic, yeah. I mean, it, you know, we're up against um, very powerful forces. Um, but change can come very quickly. Um, you know, it, it can seem impossible and then suddenly it's happening. This piece was produced by Aaron Fairbanks and Jack Inslee with additional research by Brian Reno. The songs used in this piece in order of appearance are Falsehood by Rectech, Tanning Bed by Rectech, Smile by Keto, Creepy Fnook by Rectech, Baseball Bat Beach House by Keto, Sun is Always Setting by Rectech, and again, Falsehood by Rectech. Heritage Radio Network is a member-supported nonprofit organization broadcasting over 30 live shows a week. To learn more and donate, visit our website or connect with us on iTunes, Stitcher, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram for more. Thanks for listening.